0: Macanese food is often thought of as the oldest fusion cuisine in the world. How's that come to be and, and how do you end up cooking up a fusion cuisine?
1: Hi again, Victor. A lovely intro, like big questions as always.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's true. Too big, maybe. Um, so we're talking about Macau today and I don't know if people who are listening in know exactly where it is. Um, it's about 30 kilometers um next door to hong kong um to the left if you like um so it's very close uh, it's part of the same sort of province of guangdong um and so it's on that south china coast um and yet i think it's extremely different right i mean the city's different and the food is the core of it is pretty different too I mean, what do you how do you how would you describe the differences, Andrew?
1: You know, that's a really interesting question. I think when people when people think of Macau, and even when um, you go to Macau, um, I think very few people actually interact with Macanese cuisine because actually Cantonese cuisine and, and regional Chinese food has become so big in Macau. That actually a lot of the celebrated restaurants, such as my most my favourite dim sum restaurant in the world, which is in the Grand Lisboa Hotel in Macau, um, is basically a dim sum restaurant. It's um, a three Michelin star dim sum restaurant, and if you were to ask me, what do I know about Macanese food? Actually, before I did an event with um, a very lovely lady Florita Alves, who 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 works with the Macanese government in trying to. Um, promote Macanese cuisine, I would have known nothing about it, in all honesty. Um, I think what you need also need to know is that Macau is what they call the Las Vegas of Asia, right? So it is the casino central of Asia. Obviously, um, it's the one place where you're allowed to gamble openly in, in, in China. Um, and I think you, people also need to know that Macau as a place um, is basically centered around the casinos, so the Macanese government has an extortionate amount of excess cash that they give out to residents every year. Um, you know, they give thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds to all their residents every year because the money generated from the the, the, the casino trade is so much that they don't even have enough. Um, they have too much that they have to give it away to residents um, at the end of the year as a, as a thank you for staying in Macau. Um, basically, most of Macau um, employment wise is also centered around um, hotels. So everyone basically pretty much works in a, in a profession linked to a casino in some form or way or another. Um, and so in a weird kind of way, when you talk about Macau and Macanese uh, culture, Macanese cuisine, it's kind of lost in this web of number one being very close to Hong Kong, so actually, the food, the influx of the people who go into that place actually, a lot of the time, they don't necessarily want to eat Macanese food, they want to eat Cantonese food, or they want to eat uh regional Chinese food. Um, and then secondly, um, Macau as a, as a place, um, is, is a massive mix of everything. Um, it's, it's over the years, I mean, you can give us a Um, a better kind of um, introduction to what Macau is as as a place. But even if I just look through my book, you know, the very first paragraph is the Portuguese set sail from Europe in the 15th and 16th centuries and settled in various places in Africa, Asia, America and Oceania. You know, after several attempts to establish themselves in China, they made landfill in Macau in the mid 16th century at the end of which the community of this port city comprised some thousand residents. <laughs> Who knows if it's true or not? Um, but it, it's, it's a very unique place, and almost it, it doesn't even feel like the rest of Hong Kong or the rest of China sometimes.
0: That's interesting. I think um, also the fact that it has so much casino wealth and it draws a lot of uh, Chinese billionaires, well, it used to anyway, uh, before the crackdown on corruption and other kinds of uh, uh, conspicuous spending... Um, in the last sort of six, eight years, um, it used to draw a lot of Chinese billionaires to its shores for gambling, a lot of high rollers, international high rollers, too. And so that kind of money also attracts a lot of great culinary talent. And so you have these huge hotels, amazing food of all stripes, not just Chinese regional cuisine, not just Cantonese cuisine, but also just, a, you know, it, uh, European foods, um, Americans, American foods, all sorts of amazing chefs and amazing ingredients that get flown in at the drop of a hat, you know, um some really exotic ingredients, so it's the kind of food and skills that circulate around in Macau around its casino economy is just unparalleled. There is nowhere else where you can eat the kind of food that you can eat in Macau, and at any time, so these casinos. They're open 24 hours a day and so they will serve you some of the best food at any time. Some of these high rollers don't really adhere to, you know, the kind of working day that you and I would think of um, at all. You know, they will gamble until five in the morning, sleep for a few hours, wake up at 12, start their day again. And so it's really about catering nonstop to this sort of 24 hour casino economy. Having said that, you're quite right. I think in amongst all of the casinos, there's a really traditional Macau that I think sometimes people visit, but they don't necessarily get under the hood of. And the passage you read, Andrew, was brilliant because actually it is, you know, it is true. You know, the historical records do show that Macau, unlike Hong Kong, was pretty much um, a city um, from about the 1600s, a, a smallish city, right? So it was populated um, by a fishing industry, like Hong Kong. But you know, by the time the Portuguese came and settled in the 1600 in the 16th century, then it became a proper port. So you've got a longer history than than um, Hong Kong. You've also got the Portuguese in Macau, um, kind of governing things while you've got the British in in Hong Kong um, from the 1840s, 1850s onwards. So they're very different places because I think you, even if they're both kind of European, they're both very different kind of European colonial cities. And this is what the fusion bit is about, really, is, is how the Portuguese and Portuguese tastes and, and foods infiltrated into Macau and kind of shaped the cuisine from the 16, 16th century onwards. And what it meant for um, local cooks and and the local cuisine, and so I, I know you that residency that you did with Florita. What kinds of foods were you cooking, and, and what, what what do you make for of of the of Macanese cuisine? Cooking it as you did in in A Wong.
1: I'm going to be completely honest. I found it very odd, um, and I wish I didn't find it odd. And 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 Florita was um, an extremely proud. Um, advocator of Macanese food and I'm very pragmatic as a chef in the sense that I'm you know my fundamental mantra that I always live by is a a chef's job is to cook for his guests ultimately and so we cook our cuisine for our guests and in my honest opinion in the back of my mind it was always I don't think these guests I don't think our guests are going to understand what this is um, because at the end of the day, what is Macanese cuisine? Um, from what I gather, from what I, I interacted with it, it was a, a mix of um, very classical French sometimes, um, some Mediterranean influences. So I, I saw a lot of, and not only French sources, I also saw a lot of Spanish uh, techniques and Spanish ingredients. At the same time, there was obviously... Um, riffs and interpretation on Cantonese food or Chinese food or Singaporean food or Malay food um, and then there was I mean put it this way there's a dish called African chicken um, which again was delicious but when you eat it it's very hard to get your brain to take you and transport you to any part of Asia um, and maybe that's because I cooked it badly I, you know I, I I, that could be completely possible, but I, I thought that the the biggest problem is it is so hard to really grasp conceptually what it is, and I think diners in general they need to have something they have need to have clarity. So I think if you talk about why um Citronese food has become so big um across the world in the last twenty years, it's because it's very clear. You you have those flavors or those stereotypical Sichuanese flavours, they're very clear, they're very pronounced, and you understand straight away that you can associate those flavours to Sichuan. Now, when you start using a cuisine, which is, again, got Portuguese influence, and again, I don't know much about Portuguese food, but my general kind of understanding of Portuguese gastronomy is also that it's a kind of a mix in itself of um, influences from other parts of um, Europe. So therefore, you're you're creating a cuisine in within China or within Southeast Asia, which is based around another cuisine, which is also, again, I'm going to use this dirty word, a fusion of other highly um, lots of influences from other parts of um, the surrounding area. So I think it gets lost; the identity gets very lost. And, you know, if I look at some of the recipes, it's, um, you know, like, uh, there's a dish called uh, pastis de bacalao um, and macanese, which is basically, it's basically salted cod uh, mixed with potatoes, rolled into balls with parsley and mint, um, and deep fried. Now, how do you convince someone, Well, well, not even convince, how do you explain to someone who has a history of of eating Chinese food and Southeast Asian food, that salted cod basically wrapped with potato or, or, or bind, bound together with potatoes and egg, which is a very European kind of technique, um, deep fried, um, that you're now saying to them that, you know, this is very much the food of the area. I think that's, that's a very hard thing to grasp. And as I, as I cooked more of the cuisine, um, and I, I, I started to look into and start talking to more chefs in Macau. It became even more difficult because some of them were literally like a flambéed sausage. Um, and I'm clutching straws as a chef. I remember I was just like, how am I going to put this menu together to make our guests understand it? Um, and it was it was a massive challenge. It was enjoyable, but it was a massive challenge.
0: Andrew, do you think, I mean, you said dirty word when you before you said the word fusion, and I'm interested in that because what, what in your mind happens it at, on the kitchen side when it comes to fusion food? I mean, do you think that there are successful cuisines that do fuse um, different influences together to create something greater than the sum of its parts, right? So that's the whole point of fusion cuisine. It's supposed to have some elevated... Um, level of taste and texture because you're putting two kinds of cultures together, culinary cultures together. Have you? Uh, do you do you just wholesale? Don't agree with that as a chef.
1: <laughs> I don't ever agree with. I, oh, doc I'd never ever say uh, use the word um, fusion and elevated ever in the same sentence. That's the one thing. And, and I say, and I only, I only say that because um, I've had. 15 years of chatting to you to understand and have some clarity within myself that that by doing that, you make a clouded situation even more clouded. Um, in the sense that I don't ever feel like it's about elevating anything. A lot of the time, it's for me, when people, I think, miscommunicate what I do in the kitchen, in our kitchen at A Wong, and call it fusion... I think what they're mixing up with the words is basically they're confusing with adaptation. And I feel like adaptation is a very healthy part of being a chef. And again, it comes back to that thing of a chef's job is to cook using the ingredients around us with the people that we have around us to support us and cooking for the people who are around us. And I think a chef's job is naturally to embrace that. So if, if a Chinese chef goes into Macau... And there is a lot of ingredients which may predominantly, I don't know, post the Colombian Exchange, for example, have gone into Macau as an area and people are using a lot of, you know, tomatoes, they're using a lot of chili, they're using potatoes, that kind of stuff. Then that's fine. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, but I just feel like we've reached a stage now where people have misused the word fusion in a sense that. It, they, they, there's a there's like a negative connotation there's like a impurity to it when you say it um but by definition obviously that isn't the case you know fusion is about bringing two things together am i correct is it just about yeah. bringing two things together there are no negative connotations right
0: no i mean it's not it's a neutral term it's just a question of how it's socialized right in the kitchen and outside of it and how people talk about food that is um a mix or an adaptation um or a evolution. I don't know. I think there are different terms to describe sometimes what can from the outside of the kitchen, so for lay ma- laymen, lay women, lay people like myself, um, who might not necessarily I think understand, I guess, some of the uh combination of techniques that have to happen um in a kitchen. So it, it might be that there's some adaptation, it might be that it ends up being a fusion cuisine but it's interesting what you say about um, people coming in and um, having to adapt to local tastes and local influences and, and the local foods that are available right so um, so if you are catering to um, a, a community or a group like the Portuguese in Macau um, then I suppose you'd cook for those kinds of tastes and it's it's interesting Portuguese cuisine does have a corpus. And of course, you know, a lot of Macanese foods are named in Portuguese and they are facsimiles sometimes of foods that you would get in Portugal and other colonies, ex-colonies of Portugal. So there's a kind of um, bandwidth there. We talked about this last time as well. There's a kind of bandwidth there that people have to kind of operate within. And I I think I like it that that Florida um, was... Um, an interesting person to work with right I mean she she knew her stuff she she had a a mission I guess from the Macanese government to kind of promote the cuisine and she's not unusual I think Macanese food is and maybe this is less so nowadays but it's been a kind of uh, a cuisine that's been raised and nurtured in the home right it's not necessarily a massively influential restaurant cuisine like you said it's not in casinos it's not in the hotels it's in some of the culinary institutes where there is a huge education effort to teach local people about the cuisine and tourists but it's not it doesn't necessarily like exist outside of small cafes and and small women-owned cafes in Macau so women are a huge part of the story Um, both as cafe owners as home cooks as semi-professional chefs they kind of keep this cuisine alive, and maybe, maybe it's not supposed to lend itself so easily to a, a high-end restaurant chefing. I don't know. Or- I don't
1: know. I'm not. I I, yeah, I don't know about that. I think if I look at, I don't, I, I, had a, I had a very similar conversation with um, someone who was part of, who was a, who was a part of a royal family in Rajasthan. And they, again, were talking about, you know, where do you draw the line between techniques that are used at home and then techniques that are used for, you know, royal banquets, for example. And actually, I don't feel like there are any cuisines that can't be in the home, that can't be set into an environment of a high-end restaurant. It's just, um, you know, I think the core flavours that you talk about a lot of the time, if anything, the home celebrate them better then kind of banqueting settings it's, it more if more than anything it's about how you wrap it up um, you know with the candy floss and 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 the the narrative and the communication in getting people to understand it um, and I, you know obviously florita was was in London cooking with me because you know, it was part of that communication. And I think you know, for for anyone listening, you know, if anyone wants to really understand what I was grappling with, you know, um, one of the things I remember she came and she said to me, "Well, we want to make minchi." So you, no one, don't, I, I assume most of our listeners won't know what minchi is, um, because I'd never heard of it anyway. So if I just read you a recipe, right? It's, it's um, minced pork with beef, beef, uh, an onion, shallot, garlic, some lard, some soya sauce um some red cabbage some potato or old stale bread salt pepper and a smoked meat sausage so basically it's lap chung right now that is basically cubed up potato mixed in with some minced meat um seasoned with soy sauce and then some air dried sausage put into it uh, and stir fried Mm. it's again is it delicious absolutely it's delicious um how do you how do you communicate that as being um something truly unique to an area that that says a lot about the area and, and gives the area that we're trying to celebrate identity. I think that was my biggest challenge. And I think um, that's why, because anyone listening to that recipe, they'll go, Well, it sounds like kind of parmentier potatoes um stir-fried with some ground meat. Um yeah, well, effectively it was. Um, but, but you know, how do you get the general public when they eat this dish to go, this is definitely Macanese and not French, Portuguese food? Um, and it's weird because, you know, when, when a Macanese chef does that or cooks this type of food um, using Chinese ingredients like soy sauce and lap chung, Um, it becomes confusion, right? But actually, if you talk about 2023 uh, chefs across Europe, a lot of them are using Asian ingredients, Asian condiments. They're using lap chung. They're using soy sauce. They're using oyster sauce. They're using shrimp paste, fish sauce. And it just becomes part of that natural cuisine. You know, if, uh, if, uh, if Albert Adria is using those ingredients, it's fine. It's still Spanish cuisine. But when a Macanese chef is using these ingredients, it's like, well... It's confusion.
0: So I guess I guess maybe it's about degrees then. I don't know. Um, from your perspective, I know from, um, you know, maybe those recipes aren't necessarily, you know, there's many, many recipes in the Macanese corpus. And so there are recipes that probably seem a little bit more um, in keeping with Cantonese traditions of the region. Um, so it's difficult uh, to sort of judge by the two recipes that you kind of mentioned Um, but there are some more more um, in keeping with some of the some of the local traditions but I I I hear you I think there is I guess the the difference between adaptation and substitution and fusion and then I guess kind of um wholesale in uh incorporation of a foreign cuisine into a local environment is a matter of it's a spectrum right so you start off small substitutions adaptations of techniques and then suddenly maybe it it kind of overtakes um a culinary uh, culture of cooking and i suppose that's where where some some uh some dishes may have Landed, And I'm not sure that's such a problem. I mean, it's, uh, it's absolutely kind of uh, a question of a a tiny city port state, um, kind of on the on the edge of China, uh, Portuguese governed, uh, you know, up until 1999, it, it, it was uh, about, you know, kind of keeping within a Portuguese frame, framing a culinary identity, if you like. And it's only really been the last sort of 25 years that it's had to contend with that identity a little more, um, figuring out what is in fact the kind of of Guangdongese part of of the culture and what is in fact still Portuguese, right? I think, you know, we forget, I guess, that it's only been in this last generation that it's become an ex-colonial city, an ex-Portuguese city.
1: You know, and actually, gastronomically wise if you really talk about it, when people about, talk about Macau, there are two dishes which have become um, synonymous with the area. Number one is milk curd, so it's warm milk curd. Um, whether or not that's Macanese or it's more Cantonese, it's for everyone else to decide. But basically, it's, uh, it's milk that has been set, um, and you eat it with, with sugar, basically. Um, and the second one is obviously the portuguese touch who are made famous by um a british family in macau called the stone family and they set up shop in macau and made these portuguese tarts and i call them portuguese but i don't actually know if they're actually portuguese or they're a riff of um cantonese egg tarts i'm not sure because i'm pretty sure they've been around for more than a 100 years The stone family um, and these, these Portuguese Portuguese egg tarts have become so famous in Macau that the Stone family fa- factory, they ship them out all over the world um on a daily basis. Uh, now, whether or not you can call them Macanese tarts as opposed to Portuguese tarts, I don't know. You probably have to put more light on it.
0: Well, that's interesting because there's been a lot of research about whether or not a lot of influences of, of dim sum making were actually based in macanese kitchens and the very fact that uh macau rests on a tradition of baking baking breads baking cakes baking celebration um cakes in huge quantities these portuguese egg tarts or macanese egg tarts perhaps um uh, for for hundreds of years um there's there's food historians that suggest that actually a lot of the baking of dim sum lends itself it is sort of borrowed from some of these macanese stroke portuguese traditions so it may well be that it's been the other way around andrew Lord Stowe, the bakery in Coloane is is you're right it's now a factory and it does ship um these um custard tarts um and on the other hand as you said these double milk steamed puddings very much cantonese um or macanese uh, tradition you see all these sort of dessert soup cafes around guangzhou as well very popular now so that both these traditions sit quite close in macau right you can get a double steamed uh milk pudding and you can get a, 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 a macanese egg tart quite easily you know in lots of places and so it's it's kind of a kind of happy marriage between the two right you you're not going to get a very dissatisfied customer as they kind of pick their way through Macanese, the Macanese culinary scape, I think. But what do you think? Do you, so clearly you're, the jury's out for you about whether or not some of the dim sum influences are going one way or the other.
1: Uh, you know, this, this Portuguese one always always baffles me because if it was a Portuguese traveller who came, went to Macau and started up this factory, um, it would be a lot more clear cut for me. Um, but it's a, a British family, Lord Stowe. Stone. I think
0: they're from the seventy I think lord Stowe was it wasn't that old i was think he not no um, I, I get but, the feeling it's from the you know late twentieth century
1: and then the thing is with those Portuguese tarts is that um the recipe doesn't look like it's been manipulated at all, so it looks like it's 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 very very similar it well, and again i'm I'm no expert, but it tastes very very similar to the ones that. I had in lisbon for example um in the famous uh portuguese tart place there um do i think that well you know i i think that the the introduction of european ingredients and european technique into dim sum is an incredible um incredibly important part of chinese gastronomy um and again i've been sitting here the whole time talking about how merging cultures together um can be difficult sometimes but actually Dim sum, if you really look at it to a certain extent, really is the very embodiment of that. Um, and yet I've just kind of washed over it like, like it didn't have any significance at all. Um, so so I, I do think the, the combination and the adaptation of, of techniques and how they're used over a long period of time and become internalised and become part of that repertoire um, are extremely important in the evolution of any cuisine.
0: But you stop short at saying that dim sum is fusion in the way that Macanese food is sometimes described as such or sometimes listed as such.
1: Yeah, because if I did that, I'm going to put my head in a whole spin and <laughs> I'm not going to sleep for like three weeks. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, we, 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 we've talked about this at length, right? If, if, you, if, you, if you take out certain ingredients out of the dim sum repertoire... Um, you know, even things like tapioca starch, right? Tapioca starch, I would we would pretty much agree that probably came from South America, which means that it probably really wasn't around until the sixteenth century, right? You start taking out butter from the equation of dim sum, you start taking out different types of flour. You know, um, what are you left with? I don't know. You become it becomes a very different type of dim sum to what we're used to and accustomed to all over the world um but i just i just i don't say i don't use the word fusion and dim sum in the same sentence again just to just to keep myself sane
0: and then i mean i i love that because actually it's even more complicated right so this same colombian exchange delivered the Portuguese to Macau, at, you know, via all sorts of other Asian port cities and African port cities. So, you know, there was already a kind of uh, a naval corpus of foods and whatever. But, you know, they also delivered the same, you know, chilli peppers to Sichuan. So, you know, and you mentioned that right at the top of the episode that the Sichuanese, you know, they've managed to get this this hot, this this chilli to make it work for them and have a very distinctive regional cuisine, um, so it's 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 interesting how the Colombian where and how the Colombian exchange and what ingredients it brings lands right, and how those local chefs decide what they decide to do with it right, with all this bounty of different ingredients, different techniques, um, different tastes. You know, it's maybe it's it's difficult to pin down because actually individual chefs and, and traditions based on quite minority techniques and ideas, you know, they kind of surface and then submerge and uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's interesting, right? It's, it's a five it's 400 years, right? It's not going to, it's not, it's not an easy thing to trace or to, to evolve Uh, in one straight line.
1: Even from like the modern perspective, I mean, is there um? Do you have a, a a a time allocation for when when did uh Hong Kong Hong Kongers start really started to really when did they start using Macau as this extra hub for example when when did that when did that tourism really start?
0: Well, that's interesting. I mean, like, so Macau's been settled by the Portuguese and became quite a, an important port. From sort of 1550 onwards, right, and and Hong Kong became similar from about sort of 18 from the 1850s, 1840s, of course, but then from the 1850s onwards, so it kind of overtook Macau as the main trading port of the region, and so Macau became very eclipsed under the shadow of Hong Kong, and and still is. Let's face it, right? There's there's um, despite the casino wealth, you know, Macau does. Um, is sort of plays second fiddle a little bit to Hong Kong in terms of its economic might and strength. So it's, yeah, it's an interesting, it's an interesting sort of sibling rivalry between the two, um, I think, in terms it, of representing it, yeah. wealth I, I, and influence.
1: I find it odd, like, whenever I talk to anyone from Hong Kong, if you mention Macau, they go, oh, a nice day trip. <laughs> uh, they, they, and then they'll talk about, number one, casinos, and then when they talk about gastronomy, they talk about the milk curd or they'll talk about cured meat. So they call it jiu yukon or ngau yukon, which is basically uh, candied dried pork or or basically uh, mm. beef jerky. They're the things they always talk about. And if you All ask the them... Cookies. Or the cookies. Or the cookies, yeah. Or the cookies. Um, or, the, or the tarts, mm. right, which they'll go, oh, they'll, they'll say, oh, they're the tarts, oh, they're too sweet, I can't these ones are better. Um, <laughs> but if you, if you dig a bit further and you go to them... Did you know there's Macanese food? A lot of them will look at you like, really? Okay, what is it? There would be no... It's a very strange look. It's almost like they've accepted that Macaulay is his place, but there is no kind of curiosity or, um, or want to even kind of... Give it this this identity, and I, I feel a bit bad sometimes. Like my mum, would like she she would never ever think about Macau is like this place that has its own culture, has its own gastronomy, has its own identity. It's like yeah, you know, yeah. When you're over there, go and buy me some pork jerky while you're there. Well, you know, go and have fun at the casino. It's not like oh you know you should go and check out this or or you should go really go to go try the um you know the biscuit powdered steak or the African chicken or this and I, I you know. I just feel like sometimes it's like Hong Kong have just taken this place for granted sometimes and, and, and completely stripped it of its identity by just basically not ever talking about it and just assuming it doesn't exist.
0: Oh, it's kind of like big brother energy. <laughs> 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 just wait till we talk about Shanghai and Hong Kong. That will be an interesting, interesting conversation. You've been listening to ExoSoust, an audio newsletter from me, Dr Das, and Chef Andrew Wong. Don't forget to leave us comments or questions so that we can tackle in later editions. Thank you.